Hello and welcome to the Amplifier Podcast, the show where the best in business discuss how you can grow your business best. I'm Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and this week our host Don Cooper is speaking again with Randy Long for his second of three episodes with us. Randy is the founder and CEO of Long Business Advisors and author of The Braveheart Exit and Bulletproof Your Exit, all of which are built and designed to aid in a smooth transition and exit from your business. Don and Randy discuss how important it is to plan your exit from your business, when the right time to do it is, the best ways of going about it, and ultimately how you can and should start to plan out something that many entrepreneurs, unfortunately, fail to realize the immense importance of until it is too late. It is a fantastic conversation that deals with some not often talked about business topics, so make sure you check out our other two episodes with Randy and subscribe so you don't miss any in the future. But with all of that said, I truly do hope that you enjoy this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. Well, most people decide... Uh, they, they come to the point where they want to sell the business, but too often they come to that point um, at the end of something. So in other words, they're like, okay, I'm 67. I'm just tired. I want to, I want to be out and I, and I want to get out now, you know, or something bad has happened and they just don't like it. So they want to be out and they want to be out now. So a lot of times it has to do with owners getting to the place where they're just either worn out or they're unhappy or whatever they're, but they haven't, they haven't planned for it. And so all the, they, they don't tend to, to do well in the exit because that means because they haven't planned, now they've just kind of, they've got to sell what they have, even though it may not be ready for sale. That's one thing. Secondly, they haven't done any work on, on what's the best way to get, to get it sold because you do have different options depending on the size of the company and the type of company it is. So most of the people that we work with are we would run what's called a controlled auction, which is with an M&A firm typically, um, or we would man we might we might negotiate the sale for them if they have a buyer at the table already, but but generally speaking, they don't know what to do to sell, and so then they just you know they'll put an ad to sell or they'll try to you know let some some uh, other firms know they want to sell, but but they're not negotiators, you know they've never sold a business before, most of them. And a lot of times um, their biggest regret is they don't make the kind of money they should have made. And a lot of times they don't find that out until, you know, a, a year or two after the close when it's way too late to do anything about it. So they have seller's remorse at the end. It wasn't a happy experience. Not, about 95% of business owners have seller's remorse. It's very high. And that, that struggle in that sales process or selling the business or transitioning it for that matter. Yeah. Um, you know, has a lot to do with just, they, they don't know how to plan for it. They don't know how to plan for it. Yeah. They don't recognize the issues and they are different issues depending on whether or not, I'll give you just a simple example. If I'm going to um, transition to one of my children, my business, I'll pick this, I'll say this business. If I'm going to transition this business to my child and the value of the business, you know, is four or $5 million. If I, I could leave all of my kids an equal interest in the business Mm -hmm. Or I could figure out how to transition it to the kid that actually has been working in the business and is responsible for part of the growth and, and accommodate the other kids in different ways because equal is not fair necessarily. Most of the time it's not. Right. Too, too often parents would just default to equal because they think that's the only thing fair. And what they're doing is they're sowing the seeds of destruction of the family when they do right. things like that. 
They think they're doing the simple thing, the easy thing, and the right thing. But what they've done is they've created a war amongst their kids when they die. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Equal is doesn't mean fair, and <laughs> fair doesn't mean equal. No. Nope. Um, what about partners? What about when there's multiple people in the business? Uh, and there are a lot of the businesses that we work with have. Um, we don't tend to want to work with business owners that have more than five or six shareholders because it's just the kind of work we do is so complex. <laughs> I can't mm -hmm. do it for so many people at one time inside of one company. Uh, and one of the pitfalls that comes up in issues is different ages. So you might have um, one of the partners is 35, one's 55 and one's 70, you know, how are we going to, what are we going to do? Uh, are we going to sell the business for everybody? And then we all get our share on the sale. Are we going to, um, are we collectively going to buy out the, the guy, you know, that's 70 because he wants out, but sometimes so does the 55 year old guy. Yeah. And then, and then the other guys only got a third so you have, you create, um, by not thinking that through, because you, you, you have to kind of start replace, you have to plan to replace people else. The businesses implode, you know, they just do. So we're always, as the owners get further into the business, we're always trying to, to divide up their responsibilities to eliminate their need to work. The older, especially the older they get and the closer they want to be to an exit. A lot of problems are resolved with, with good buy-sell agreements. So mm -hmm. we always try to have, whether it, you have an LLC or an S corp or a C corp or whatever it is, we, we typically want all of our clients to have buy sell agreements because it allows everybody in the light of day to negotiate and understand how things will go if something happens. And on top of that, we can also fund it to make sure the funds are available for it in the event that something goes wrong. So that's kind of a foundational piece for us. Uh, mm -hmm. But I would, I, it's probably, I think it's around 30% of businesses uh, have buy-sell agreements. So it's, a, it's not even, it's not even half. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I was a partner in a company 23 years ago and I was in my mid twenties. Yeah. And I had a partner who was 42 and I had two partners who were in their late sixties, early seventies. There you go. And it was a train wreck mess. Not to, <laughs> trying to get, you know, when we, when we all wrapped up and, you know, but it ended up that we, we, the business failed because we just couldn't agree on how to do things. That's right. Uh, very different mindsets, very different stages in life. One of the things that really struck me was the two older gentlemen who were involved in the business. They kept trying to create jobs for their kids who were not business people. Like, oh, well, my son's 40 and I want to bring him into the business. And then he comes into the business and he doesn't know anything about our operation and he wants to be a manager and he wants to, because dad's an owner. And all of a sudden we, well, you gotta be a technician because you don't know anything about what we do. And I remember having conflicts where I was running construction projects and this guy didn't want to listen to me because I was 15 years younger than him because yeah. his dad was an owner. I'm like, and I had to, I had to fire the guy. Yeah. Right. And then, and then it became a conflict with his 70 year old father going, well, why did you fire him? Well, well quite frankly, because he was an idiot. <laughs> <The loser. laughs> but yeah, you know, we, you know, we, you know, hiring family can be challenging if you don't have the right, particularly amongst partners can be a real, real challenging that's, that's uh, ordeal. So the idea about when you go into, um, you know, uh, 
everything isn't a partnership. You know, some go, if you go into business, let's just say with partners at some level. So whether they're shareholders or whether they're LLC owners or whether they're actual partners in a partnership, the, the same basic idea is when we go into start a business, you need to have a good idea about what the exit looks like when right. you start. Because when you go in with that, then you can go in and you can plan for these things to happen, these contingency things, and you can build the rules in and you can think it through. It's the problem is that when you get into this stuff and then there's not a real clear level of authority because a lot of times there's uh, people will make mistakes, simple things like you know giving a secretary 40% of the business when they start. I mean, I've, I've seen some of those. I've seen other people start businesses and give 50% of the what of the business to somebody who's going to help them, but they are generating all of the business and all of the, they have all the knowledge, they generate all the sales. And this person is nothing more than a tactician. I mean, a technician. Right. And so how in the world did this guy think he should give away his business to this person who had no intellectual capital, you know? Yeah. So people make mistakes like that a lot. What that spurs me to think, I mean, there's, there's lots of examples. I mean, in, in the in the Silicon Valley world, you hear about lots of people who get shares and become millionaires and, and whatnot because yeah. they were issued stock options. But this, we're talking about private companies. Now, I, I everything that I, you just said about, you know, giving away the company in the early days is silly. How do you, what, what's the best practices for potentially using equity or shadow stock and those kinds of equity tools to attract people or to help your employees who help grow the business gain value. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, there, there's a number of, of ways to incentivize employees without making them shareholders. I'm right. not a big fan uh, in, the, in the small to medium-sized business world. I'm not a big fan of giving equity away. I don't mind sharing um, you know, the growth at some level, whether we do a um, stock stock appreciation rights, you know, there, there are certain tools you can do, stay bonuses, you can do all kinds of different things that would allow them to grow with the company. And if there's an exit, they get paid, you know, something to go along with their regular salary, which is meaningful, you know, right. Um, and they can also do that by bonuses and pension plans. And there's just a lot of different ways to, to incentivize them. But I do know that some of the if they're if they're true intellectual capital, a lot of them want to have some upside in what's going on, and you can one way you can do it, of course, is if you give them shares, you can give them non-voting shares. Right. They don't have to have any control issues uh, just because they want an, uh, some sort of equity interest. So there's, I guess, it's a continuum of how far do you need to go in order to retain the talent. And that will be different depending on who they are and what your industry is. If uh, a business owner needs to get ready and always get ready for a sale, and uh, I went through, uh, I was going through some merger acquisition um, things a few years ago, and I ended up uh, working, or, or I don't know if I was working with or 
getting a lobotomy by um, <laughs> four, you know, it was about 20 or 30 different uh, M&A firms, mostly private equity firms. And so I really got a deep inside look at how they evaluate businesses and the processes and the balance sheet and what they consider valuable, what they don't. One of the, one of the most insightful things I got out of it, I think that entrepreneurs can struggle with in understanding value is we as entrepreneurs have this massive emotional connection to this thing that we've built. Yeah. But when it comes to a buyer, whether it's a buyer, so you can leave, or it is, a, you know, some other financial instrument that you're going to use to grow your business. They don't have that emotional connection. It's not their baby. Right. It's, a, it's an investment. It's a transaction. And so their formulas of risk uh, and and versus reward have nothing to do with your tight connection with this thing that you've built. I think that yeah. was, and so understanding what they, and they, and what I, what I found really interesting is every single firm out there has their own, their own angle. <laughs> they know? do. Right? They, different companies will value companies that they're purchasing differently because they want different things from them. Right. Sometimes they might be buying the company just because they want the technology and they're going to dump everybody after they buy. They just mm -hmm. want the software or whatever it is. So it depends on it depends on what they're buying, how they intend to leverage the use of that company across their platform. So if they can take your, you know, your your company, which does one thing and they can leverage it across a whole bunch of different uses and platforms, they can make it worth a lot more money by virtue of their own leverage inside their companies. They'll right. pay a lot of money for that more so than somebody that's going to buy it as a standalone income, you know, like a family office, family offices buy interests in businesses or businesses because they want, they want the growth, but they also love steady income. Sure. You know? yep. So those are different buyers for different reasons and they'll pay different prices because of that. You know, and I, I experienced every, you know, I had some, I had some strategic investors. We yep. had some just, you know, pure, you know, private equity, you know, they wanted it for, they wanted it for three years and build it up. And their idea was to get out and get a multiple. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, people who were a little bit more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know if it's conscious or ethical investors who had, you know, they were pick, they were picking what they wanted to invest in because they were, they were, uh, trying to create a cause and, and a movement in, in, in an area. So there's, you know, I experienced all aspects of that, but they were all looking for, you know, as you put it in your catalyst, what's the management team like? That's right. What, what's the customer base like? That's what's right. your consistency and revenue? What are the assets looking like? What, what kinds of systems and processes do you have to support all of that? Or, you know, what, you know, what I think the, the biggest risk that all of them would look at is, you know, What's the, what's the risk in predictability and scalability once we buy? That's right. That's a right? big deal. So I always, tell, I always tell my business owners, look, what we're trying to do is, is deal with the fact that capital is a coward, right? When, once you understand capital is a coward, now you know that as we're building, looking towards building a company to exit, we're, we want to put ourselves in, into the shoes of a buyer and look at our company through those lenses. We want to look and say, "Gee, um, what it, what would be valuable, you know, to the to a buyer 
and, and let's build our company. And what would be risky to one? Was there part of our company that just looks bad from the outside? We might think it looks fine or we know why it's the way it is, but we've got to start looking through the lens of the of buyers and build companies and fill holes that need to be filled so we don't we don't get dinged on those things because they're looking for reasons to pay you less. Yes. Yeah, 100%. 100%. You know yeah. it. It's the value. Um, what's the word that I heard so many times? Um, the value detractors. <laughs> value detractors. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's well, right. we would have paid you 10 million, but because <laughs> of this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, it's six. And because of this, we're going to give you a discount on this, and this, and this, and this, and this. <laughs> That's right. And I'm like, am I paying you? <laughs> right? and, and it was a, it was a really, you know, for me in terms of thinking about how do you build your business and grow your team? And your, it was, it was a, it was a process I really didn't enjoy. Right. But I learned a so lot. much yep. over that 12 months of, of going through that process. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what was funny is, you know, we had three different deals in that, in that 18 month process, none of them closed. Yeah. So, you know, wh what's the percentage of businesses that close when, you know, I mean, and what's yeah, less, the, than, less than half of yeah. the businesses will ever sell. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and did you run a, did you run a controlled auction process? Well, we had, uh, yes, we had, we, we had, we had people all making control bids. Yeah. So that was in place, but in, a, in other words, you had an M and a firm that was managing the sale. Yes. Yes. hundred okay. yeah. percent. All right. Well, and it was a merger because what we were trying to do was bring, we were trying to take out an investor and we were trying to buy another company, merge it, and then grow from there. And okay. so it was a really interesting, really interesting project. Uh, you know, the, the real issue that happened in that deal was it was in a volatile time in the oil and gas market. And so there was a lot of uncertainty on the price of, of that commodity that was, that was uh, discounting everyone's ability or interest in investing in it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was a, it was a M&A structure. We had a data room set up and then yeah. we were- So you, know, you ran the whole, the whole thing. thing. Okay, that's yeah. good. But even then, and a lot of people think, oh, I've hired an M&A firm, I'm going to get a sale. It doesn't work that way. You know, yeah. you, um, the good companies, the strong companies, um, the ones that are growing, that are well-managed, those, this is why I try to tell them, you're in a competition, not just- with yourself to see how much you can get. You're in a competition with everybody else that's remotely in, in the industry and the space in which the buyers are going to cross over. You're competing against all of them for whether or not your company is strong relative to theirs so you can sell and they won't. That's what's yes. happening. Yeah. And so if you can get your, your head around the fact that this is not just a one-off, but you're actually typically, and even today, you're competing on a global level. You know, some of our companies are bought by European. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, right. You know, in our process, you know, our, our industrial business is a very niche business. We had M&A firms who were investor firms for, in North Carolina. We had them in England. We had them in Houston, right. Texas. We're in Canada. We had a dozen uh, that were in Canada as well that were all part of that process. Yep. And, you know, but they all, you know, I would say they were all 70% similar in terms of what they were looking at, what they wanted to see. But the, the way that they would structure their offers had all sorts of different elements that were really, it was, a, it was, it was probably the, the best 
unintended M&A education that I ever had in my life. Um, <laughs> That's right. And so now, now I, you know, I, I, but what's really interesting is, you know, when I try to teach my team this, some of them were with me at the time, some of them are newer, is I view the lens of the business that way today. I look at if, you know, if I got hit by a bus today, what would what would work in this business? What would not work in this business right. with my team and my family in terms of, you know, how this would all play out? And so I look at the business. And, OK, there's a problem there. There's a problem there. This is good. Let's but, you know, but you're trying to, you know, as, as you say, trying to plug those holes in the management team or in the consistency or in the customer base or in the processes or in the assets or yep. in the way, you know, you know, something as simple as, you know, we have, you know, 12 or $13 million worth of stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, inside of our business, our people say, well, I know where it all is. Right. That's great. But when a buyer comes in tomorrow, they want to know where it is. They want to see its utilization. They, they want to understand its care and control and can you grab it? And so I remember going through the whole the asset piece of that whole thing. And they just showed up and said, yeah, we've got your entire asset list. We want to see these 100 pieces. That's right. <laughs> As yeah. a test, right? As a test of Absolutely. If, you have, if you have these 13,000 things were $12 million, we want to do a quality test on these random 100 things that they picked. And we had, you know, my team had to walk around with them yep. and show yep. them in our system and show them physically where they were. And, and, you know, and that was painful for my team and it was, but it was helpful saying, look, we need a asset and inventory control system for right. all four of our locations. So we know where everything is at every time, what's it's ready for use state, how right. well was it maintained what was its original purchase price? What's its depreciated value? What's its book value today? And that needs to be a dynamic system of how we operate. Right. And how and your and the turnover, right? The turn, turnover rates on products and, and yeah. you just have to be able to you you need to know all the answers to the questions is the answer. All the all the answers to the questions <laughs> right. and without a stutter. That's exactly right. <laughs> without right. a stutter, because you know, you may have a $200,000 piece of equipment that's really important to your business yep. for you. Yep. But if it only gets used twice a year, they instantly pivot into, well, can we flip that and sell that off? Cause we don't yep. want it. And, but, but you, well, and, and, but we need it. Well, okay. Can you rent it for the two times a year you need it? Well, no, you know, the only, the only other one is in Houston, Texas. And it's, it's, it takes four weeks to get it if you need it. Well, yeah, I don't know that we're going to want to invest in that piece of assets. And how many more assets do you have like that that you don't utilize very often? <laughs> and, 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 you know, and so during that process, it's a conversation where you're trying to explain your business. What you don't realize when you're going through it is the real intention is how do I discount parts Everything. of the business? How do I discount based on what you've told me? And, um, and so you've got to have an answer to everything. It's, yes, it's really, really interesting process that I, I learned a lot. I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it, but it was like an M&A MBA. <laughs> That's a fact. That's yeah. a fact. And there you have it. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Amplifier podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with Don or Randy at any point in time and discover more of what both of them can do for you and your business, then you can always find both of their links in the description of this episode. 
Make sure you leave a five-star rating on this show. It truly does help us out a lot. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. With all of that said, though, I truly do hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Amplifier Podcast, and we shall see you next time.